the EIB podcast, Financing Development in North Africa. Welcome to one of this pair of special podcasts supported by the European Investment Bank, looking at some of the most important issues being discussed here in Marrakesh at the annual meetings of the World Bank and International Monetary Fund. I'm John Hay, Editor of Global Markets, and I'm here with Ricardo Mourinho, Vice President of the EIB, responsible, among other things, for the bank's financing in Morocco and Tunisia, as well as Spain and Portugal and Latin America too. Hello, Ricardo. Hello. Now, North Africa is obviously a region on the front line of climate change, with some of the hottest and driest climates in the world, and a heavy reliance on imported food. It can also be subject to natural disasters, as we've seen tragically twice in the past few weeks, with a devastating earthquake in Morocco, and then the appalling flood in Libya. First, Ricardo, what is the EIB doing to help here? Well, EIB is uh, doing activity inside and outside you, and the North Africa is an area of operations of EIB where we have a long-standing relationship uh, with the countries, Morocco, Tunisia, but also in the Mashrak region with Egypt uh, and other countries in the region. And in what concerns Morocco, of course, that uh, what happened on the last uh, September rates, it's a big tragedy that uh, no one can prevent, though the country and the region has been affected by uh, climate change quite substantially. We are working in Morocco since 1979. Since then, we have done uh, 10 billion euro of investment. Recently, uh, we have been investing in uh, a number of areas that go from renewable energy, water, sanitation, uh, sustainable transport, but also on education and health. In the aftermath of the earthquake, we have expressed our condolences uh, to the Moroccan authorities and Moroccan people, and uh, we uh, have expressed our availability to look at uh, the operations that we have ongoing, to disperse faster, to uh, repurpose amounts that were allocated to uh, new uh, investment projects that can be used for immediate repairment of the networks of electricity, water, also to repairing schools that were quite affected. We have signed recently an operation for schools. And uh, of course, uh, now it stands with the Moroccan authorities that are assessing the impacts of the earthquake. And uh, we have uh, kept in contact uh, with the key counterparts to see how we can uh, support and uh, repurpose investments to uh, rebuild the country. And then looking forward to a full reconstruction uh, of the areas most affected, uh, where we are uh, deeply uh, committed to support Moroccan. And on a more long-term basis, what are the most pressing development needs you see in the MENA region? Look, uh, Africa and also the MENA region are quite heterogeneous. Uh, so uh, have different countries with different uh, institutional setups so with different uh, capacity of uh, implementing investments. I would say that one of the pressing developments is in fact building implementation and institutional capacity, the ability to do projects, bankable projects, technically, economically, and financially viable while respecting environment and promoting a social tissue. The sectors we are more engaged in North Africa are not very different from the priorities that we have for Europe and for areas in the world. Renewable energy is definitely a key priority, while also financing energy efficiency and cutting-edge projects, in particular looking at the hydrogen filiere and the possibility of developing projects on the hydrogen filiere 
in North Africa. Then water and sanitation uh, is a key area, not only clean water and uh, sanitation, but also water management, which, be, which is becoming a key issue, not, so not only in North Africa, but also in Southern Europe. Uh, the need to manage water, save water, reutilize and recycle water such that the water that we have can be better utilized. This is part of the adaptation. Also investing in sustainable transport, uh, because uh, if you want to green our economies, uh, sustainable transport is key from the efficiency and the ability to electrify uh, transport, but also keep investing in education in, in the health sector. And uh, I think this is a good package, a good compound that uh, we can uh, put forward as European Union and as a partnership with North Africa. For many countries in the region, of course, oil and gas production are the mainstay of the economy and they hope to increase output. Is there really any chance that these countries are going to accept policies that involve reducing fossil fuel output, which curbing climate change would require? Well, I perfectly understand that the challenge, but uh, let me say two things to, to start. First, the future is green. So no oil and gas. We have committed as EIB, the context of our climate bank roadmap, to stop any funding to uh, projects that are not Paris aligned and to increase our share of funding for climate action and environmental sustainability to 50% or more from 2025 onwards. Well, given the current situation, the war and the energy crisis, this led us to, in fact, reach the more than 50% two years ago. And last year, we were at 58%, largely driven, of course, by mitigation investments, in particular renewable energy. The second thing that I want to make clear is that we are in a transition not in the revolution. So this means that uh, to do this transition, we need to gradually and uh, forcefully phase in green energy. But during this transition, some fossil fuels will still be needed during the transition. And that's how we face the topic. We finance the green. We recognize that uh, fossil fuels are part of this transition, namely gas uh, is transition energy. But countries must use inside and outside you this uh, transition to make a transition in their economic structures such that they move into green energy into green manufacturing into green agriculture because in a from 2030 onwards uh, it's no green no business so all the businesses that are not in the greening strategy will not survive after 2030. So EIB is very deeply committed to support this transition, to support this transition in a perspective of open strategic autonomy, meaning that North Africa is a very important region for its geographical location, for its opportunities, for its demographic structure, for the ability to have cross-border investments that will allow to have fair share of value create value on both sides of the Mediterranean basin and leave value, employment, income and well-being there. And that's how we face this uh, challenge. And that's why I think that uh, countries will gradually move into green economies and not dependent on fossil fuels anymore. And does your commitment to being a climate bank sometimes create difficulties in the region? For example, do you have to refuse to finance some projects that countries would like you to finance? Usually, we don't need to refuse projects. Countries, counterparts, being them the sovereigns or the private counterparts, know very well what are our exclusions and our restrictions. So they don't come to us to finance a project that they know that uh, we cannot finance. 
of course, that for every project that you're financing, we are mainstreaming climate action. And this implies that uh, we do not refuse projects. We tend to discuss and uh, provide technical assistance such that projects are improved and that they become better projects. I not say that uh, there are some projects that we don't find a way to finance. This happens everywhere from inside EU to outside EU. But uh, in general, we made projects from uh, non-eligible to eligible, from non-bankable to bankable, by mainstreaming our key features during the due diligence process, which is quite strict, and that takes into account not only financial sustainability of the project, but also economic in the sense that create value for the populations, but also respect the environment and promote uh, social cohesion and respect local communities. And that's part of how we improve the projects with our counterparts. And uh, this is a quality stamp that allows them to crowd in other funds, being public sector funds or private sector funds. And that's how we transform every euro that we invest uh, in four or five euros of the final investment by adding up resources uh, through this uh, quality stamp. Obviously, the transition can be disruptive, can't it, to economies and to society. You know, certain industries have to become smaller or, or, or change radically. Others, others will need to grow up, perhaps in different places. So how can the EIB try to promote the, a just transition? It, this is obviously a slogan that one hears everywhere, but how can you sort of make that a reality? Well, inside you, you have the just transition mechanism where are deeply involved and you have uh, an amount of funds that can be used and devoted to this just transition. Uh, our view in the Climate Bank Roadmap, that's very clear, is that any just transition needs to be a global just transition, will not succeed if we do not support communities that be more negatively affected by the transition. If we don't do this, these communities that will lose their earnings, income, jobs, will fight against. And they are large and big enough to fight against and to put breaks or to prevent or to put at risk the transition. Given that we are aware that we need to support these communities such that the transition is beneficial for everybody. This means that we need to put forward funds, financing, climate uh, technical assistance for having this climate action in a way that is mutually beneficial. This means reskilling, training, educating, supporting green manufacturing, supporting other types of industries, such that these communities and countries understand that they can benefit from supporting the transition because there is value to share for everybody. And that's precisely the concept of open strategic autonomy. We need to do it together. We need to do it in the benefit of everybody. That cannot be the all winning winners and the all losing losers, because otherwise we create a confrontation that will make us fail in this transition and we cannot fail. In your work in North Africa, do you find it easy to collaborate with other international development banks or is that something that there's room for improvement? There's always room for improvement, definitely, as uh, most activities in our lives. Let me say that... Uh, we, uh, the international financial institu institutions and the multilateral development banks, we work together 
we align and we discuss our priorities, how to better best use our resources, and we try to be complementary and exploit synergies. And that's a permanent work. We have multi-reliance agreements with the other uh, MDBs, such that when we co-finance a project, only one of us does the diligence and the others benefit from this, for instance. We try to promote structures that are adequate to each of the business models of each of us, because uh, all MDBs are different. Some have more local presence, some of them have less local presence. Some are more based on debt, some are more based on equity. EIB, for instance, has less local presence than other MDBs, but we have these mutual reliance agreements that allow us to have both of uh, the best of both worlds, to benefit from others' local presence, to have a small local presence, but still engage and providing our fund financing and our due diligence and technical capacity. And DIB, as a rule, does not finance more than 50% of a project, which means that somebody else has to finance the remaining 50%, creating, of course, room for others to finance. So usually we split the tickets such that there is room for everybody to participate in most of the projects. So we tend to collaborate well, but of course there is room for improvement always. I'm interested in what's the constraint for your lending in North Africa and your investment there. Is it that you can't allocate more resources from the EIB or is it the availability of bankable projects? Look, at every conference, discussion, debate, brainstorming I participate in, we have always this dichotomy. Those that say that uh, money is not enough and those that say there are no bankable projects. Both are right and both are wrong in my view. I come from the standpoint that the issue is that there is not enough money, there is not enough resources, there are more projects than resources, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Because this implies that we need to scrutinize, to do the good due diligence on the projects and move forward and allocate the existing resources to the best projects. That said, EIB funding, we have quite a, a good amount of funding. We don't feel restrictions on the funding side. We feel restrictions first on uh, implementation, where technical assistance is very important to ensure that projects first are well-designed and second can be implemented properly. That's where we feel that countries, and that's not uh, only in North Africa, in Europe, you have countries, uh, many countries that in fact have also uh, limitations in the ability to implement projects. Don't forget, this is a massive investment. No country has engaged in such a investment program never in his life. So this means that uh, the public sector structures need to be adapted to this. This needs, means that the private sector needs to find the resources, financial, yes, but also human resources that are equipped and uh, that have the competences to implement projects in a good shape. We don't want to move fast just to move fast and throw money on the, on the projects or on the problems. This has never helped. We need to have good projects, we need to move fast, but we need to move in a way that creates value and that not simply uh, uses resources in an inefficient manner. So I'd like to end with, if there was one thing you could change that would enable the EIB to contribute more to development finance in North Africa, what would that be? Well, I would say that uh, local presence is something on which EIB uh, could, should, and must improve in the sense that uh, having uh, our local offices equipped uh, not only with the uh, origination teams, but also with technical assistance uh, and uh, advisory teams that can 
promote precisely this uh, good design and implementation, but also good what we call upstream advisory, meaning supporting countries in developing the legal frameworks and the enabling environments to make things happen. That's, uh, I would say, a challenge. We are addressing it. We are increasing our local presence. And uh, I think we are tackling the challenge, but that's currently what I face most as a limitation. Thank you, Ricardo. Well, we look forward to seeing your growth in the region. And it's clear, obviously, there's a great deal to do, but also some promising opportunities where development finance can make a difference in North Africa. So it's been great to talk to you, Ricardo. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much.